down to the emergency department for a um, a 17 year old boy who'd um, had a cardiac arrest who had come in really unwell and then had cardiac arrest in the emergency department and he had a uh, one I was told he had one ventricle so he must have had a Fontan circulation so that was pretty challenging unfortunately um, he didn't survive that but that was the first time I'd actually come actually come across someone with a Fontan circulation Welcome to episode 30 of the Opposite Guiney Quick Care Podcast. Hi everyone, before we get into this week's podcast episode, I'd just like to um, congratulate the winners of the last episode's quiz. Um, the correct answer was, of course, Christopher B. Lynch, the famous inventor of the B. Lynch compression suture. Um, so, yeah, congratulations, Rebecca Warren and seven minutes slow Peter Garnett, who came in uh, a close second. And uh, Flora Dane, you also did well. Um, so, uh, yeah, looking forward to the next quiz. And um, before we get into this week's episode, I'd like to thank Chong for helping me out at short notice. So I sort of cornered him uh, and said, can you help me record this one? Um, so uh, thanks for being a good sport. And also, I'd just like to point out to everyone who's listening that Chong and I don't um, pretend to be experts in um, this congenital heart disease condition, but um, we're just sort of enthusiastic um, amateurs who have uh, come across uh, this condition a couple of times and so I've tried to hopefully put across um, some good learning points in this episode. Thanks for listening. Hi everyone, welcome back. Um, This week I have a new guest on the show, uh, Chong, who's a um, a colleague of mine, another consultant anaesthetist. And uh, uh, the theme of this week's talk is going to be about uh, the parturient with the Fontan circulation, which is a congenital heart disease uh, patient who's had a specific um, repair of their heart. Uh, but before we get into that, first of all, I'd like to apologise to Graham for last week's, or the last episode, uh, where I um, I think in the email that I sent out, I accused him of uh, predicting that the Netherlands would win the, the uh, Soccer World Cup. Uh, and obviously, you know, the uh, uh, entertaining bit about that is that the Netherlands aren't actually in the World Cup. But uh, I went back and listened, and he actually said Deutschland. I, I apologise, Graham. I thought you said the Dutch. Anyway, your prediction of Deutschland winning is also incorrect because, uh, as everyone probably knows by now, Germany have already gone out. So, uh, uh, Chong, before we get any further, um, let's um, have a quick um, discussion about uh, what is uh, the Fontan circulation and and why did we choose to discuss this um, topic. Um, So you had a patient uh, how many years ago, John? Uh, It would have been years ago yep and I think we've had uh, in the hospital we work at we've probably maybe I think four or five cases in the last four or five years so it certainly seems to be um, a trickle of them coming through uh, admittedly we, work, we do work in a large tertiary women's hospital but um, uh, this is a, a really interesting uh, case There's a lot of interesting physiology that we can discuss um, so I'm going to try and explain what is the Fontan circulation in one one or two sentences, and then uh, and then we'll go into a bit more detail in a minute. So basically, the Fontan circulation. Uh, the Fontan was a um, French cardiothoracic surgeon, so it's named after him. It's basically people who only have one ventricle, and uh, they surgically repair the circulation in the heart such that they um, have one ventricle. Uh, which is you, which obviously pumps blood around the body, and all the blood that goes through the lungs and through 
through to the uh, functioning ventricle uh, does so passively down a you know pressure uh, venous pressure gradient. So there's nothing pumping the blood through the lungs. So that is uh, very different to what what occurs in most humans, isn't it? Yeah, the uh, kind of approach that I had to it was uh, in reading of a textbook was it's essentially um, complete right heart failure in that there is the absence of a ventricle for the pulmonary circulation. <clears throat> um, so I had a bit, did a bit of a, um, research on this. So um, uh, the Fontan uh, surgical repair was actually invented in 1971. So there's only it's only been going for about 45 years. Um, and in Australia and New Zealand, there's a registry which is uh, kept, which um, shows that probably just over a thousand people in, in uh, ANZ have had the Fontan procedure done. Um, so that probably means in reality, we did try to number crunch. We're not sure whether it's a 50-50, but probably there's probably three to 400 women of reproductive age who have a Fontan circulation circulating around Australia and New Zealand. Uh, and of course now, um, because they've been doing such a good job with their surgical repair of this, um, the surgical repairs, they're, they're all sort of getting through adolescence and making it to adulthood. And like all other human beings, they want to uh, get married and have families. So we're um, so they're, they're getting pregnant and we're seeing them uh, here in the um, obstetric um, setting. Uh, what else? The peripheral hospital got called down to the emergency department for a... Um, a 17-year-old boy who'd um, had a cardiac arrest, who had come in really unwell and then had cardiac arrest in the emergency department and he had a uh, one, I was told he had one ventricle, so he must have had a Fontan circulation. So that was pretty challenging. Unfortunately, um, he didn't survive that, but that was the first time I'd actually come, ac actually come across someone with a Fontan circulation. Um, <clears throat> and we've had a few challenging cases here at our hospital as well. Um, so Chong, I'm going to ask, I'm going to put you on the spot. What sort of conditions, or what are the most common conditions which are palliated with the Fontan circulation? So, well, I uh, believe the initial uh, indication for it was for uh, infants with tricuspid atresia, uh, but it's also for uh, those with hyperplastic left heart syndrome, uh, and uh, I guess other um, other major uh, congenital heart disease. Yeah, so there's actually a whole list. There's a table of um, um, conditions which um, um, basically are congenital conditions which are not um, able to be repaired uh, to have the you know the normal two ventricle heart. So um, uh, we'll just put that in the uh, show notes. Um, but there's probably about ten or twelve conditions I think. And so basically, um, I'm going to attempt in a really uh, simple manner to explain um, how they do it. So basically, when um, when the neonate is born, uh, the lungs are immature, so they can't actually do the Fontan procedure straight away. So they um, they just do a temporising measure, which allows the um, the infant's heart to pump blood around its body, and some blood to go through the uh, pulmonary circulation. And there's usually like a connection in the, in the they leave a connection in the heart, like an ASD or something like that, to allow mixing of the blood. Uh, and then at a later stage, so that's the first stage correction, and they, I think that usually what happens uh, is that the, uh, the neonate doesn't have a very normal aorta, so they have to use the pulmonary artery as, uh, as its aorta. And then in the second stage, once the lungs have got a bit more mature and the pressure in them is a bit lower, they do a hemifontan, which is where half of the venous blood is, is directly connected to the, um, 
pulmonary artery. And then finally, the final procedure, which is the Fontaine, the full Fontaine procedure, is um, all of the all of the venous blood which um, is returning from the body via both the superior and inferior vena cavas are plugged straight into the pulmonary artery and they just passively flow down the pulmonary artery into the lungs and then through the lungs out the other side into the atrium so that could be the left or right atrium just depends on which they only have one ventricle so they only have one atrium and one one ventricle uh, and then it's pumped through that one one ventricle system out into the body um, so it's pretty um, so it has quite a lot of um, implications for their physiology and their reserve um, so we're going to go into the to all the things that uh, the implications that this has so before we do that though I thought I might talk about the prognosis John is um, do you know what is the prognosis for um, people with um, Fontaine uh, circulation um, in general yeah, yeah. it's only been around 40 years so we don't really have a good idea actually um, because you, you know these um, patients um, haven't been getting into old age yet have they there's only a few that are over the, over the age of 40 no I wouldn't be able to guess but um, as we mentioned the prognosis could change uh, with an improvement in the uh, procedures uh, we mentioned so I the right atrium is no longer included in the repair um, if there were a right atrium so that uh, there's less uh, potential to develop um, arrhythmia yep so I think um, when they first did the Fontaine procedure they thought we'll, we'll leave the right atrium uh, attached as well so, so the vena cable will be plugged into the right atrium and they thought you know, this right atrium will be able to pump a little bit and that will help blood get through the heart but what they discovered over time was what actually happened was this atrium dilated up, became a big floppy sort of um, pouch, which, which was, um, wasn't very beneficial, and it um, tended to cause cardiac arrhythmias like atrial fibrillation and was more prone to forming um, blood clots and thromboses. So the modern version of the Fontaine circulation, they don't use the right atrium, they just plug the vena cava straight into the pulmonary artery. Um, so in the long term, some of the complications that uh, can occur, as we just mentioned, arrhythmias and thrombosis, um, so most of these patients are on anticoagulants. Um, if their ventricle over time um, develops dysfunction, they can get cardiac failure. Um, if they, but also um, one of the major problems is that because they have such a high venous pressure in their body, um, this can um, eventually cause damage in some end organs like the liver, and where they can get, get be prone to getting cirrhosis, and that can also affect the gut where they have this uh, condition called protein losing enteropathy. So those are the sorts of things that can, they can come to grief from uh, in the longer term. And of course, anything, any sort of dysfunction, even minor dysfunction of um, their, um, their one ventricle uh, has much more, um, it can be much more catastrophic for them than it would be for someone like you, you or I, who, who if we had a little bit of um, pro, you know, AF or we had a bit of a, a leaky mitral valve, for example, we'd probably still cope, but that can cause um, serious um, decompensation in, in uh, these patients because they, they they don't have much reserve so um, so <clears throat> um, so we're going to talk about the hypothetical pregnant Fontan patients so there's a lot of implications obviously when you become pregnant uh, because it puts um, a lot of strain or there's a lot of physiological changes which occur in the cardiovascular system and um, someone who doesn't have a normal circulation that can put a lot of strain on them 
Um, so most of the time, people who have this condition uh, usually recommended that they um, deliver in a tertiary centre. Um, what are the sorts of things you think that they might need access to uh, when they're during their pregnancy and at the time of delivery? Well, I think the most important thing was actually, in my experience, the um, assessment from the uh, cardiologist who was very familiar with the patient in the first place. Um, so having that sort of um, oversight and uh, assessment would be very helpful for the obstetricians to um, decide and, and with the anaesthetists to decide when uh, the timing was best for delivery um, based on both uh, well, the maternal and fetal uh, well-being. Yep, so I think in general, um, you know, it needs to be a multidisciplinary sort of planning um, of their care. Um, obviously, a key person is probably their main cardiologist, um, who, as Chong uh, has mentioned, is, um, often knows them really well. And this is these are obscure conditions. So adult cardiologists who have an interest in congenital heart disease or subspecialising, sub you know, they know this condition better than anyone else. Um, but also, you know, obviously the uh, obstetricians or the maternal fetal medicine team, the uh, anaesthesia team, probably uh, in, in all likelihood most, most uh, women will be delivering in a, hosp in a hospital that has um, intensive care services and maybe even um, backup with cardiothoracics and things like that, critical care uh, services. So um, let's talk about delivery. So. Assuming that they, uh, so there is a, there's a few papers talking about, um, you know, pregnancy uh, outcomes and I think there are, is a higher rate of um, preterm birth and miscarriages and things like that, but let's talk about the practical measures of uh, management of someone if they make it to term and um, need delivering. Um, what are the different uh, options for delivery, John? So, uh, I guess the options are to just allow spontaneous labour, uh, which is probably the one of the least preferred. Um, yep. well, actually, the least preferred was probably the one in my experience, which was a, a complete emergency that required a, a GA caesarean. Uh, I guess the options are to induce labour and uh, to have an assisted or instrumental vaginal delivery uh, to reduce any sort of um, vasoconstriction from sympathetic um, yep. stimulus from pain or uh, the, and uh, the valve salve manoeuvre from pushing uh, and yep so I just sort of stop you there yep. for a second so the idea about um, so the, the advantage of having a planned date for delivery is um, timing the anticoagulation mainly isn't it yeah so as uh, often said these um, as you said often these patients are anticoagulated and that has implications in both the delivery and any anaesthetic interventions Yep, so most of them are going to be on uh, low molecular weight clexane. That seems to be the, the safest anticoagulant in pregnancy. Um, so from what I, I think most of the, the ones that we've come across have been anticoagulated, but I did read that there are some who, are, who don't get anticoagulated, so I guess that makes it easier. Um, and I'm not 100% sure, we'd have to ask cardiologists, that maybe it's the, the women who still have that residual atrium and that, that, um, which is at risk of, sort of developing a thrombus. Maybe the, as the patients who are in the last 20 years have had that newer procedure come through and maybe they'll be less likely to be on anticoagulation. Um, yeah, that's good. So a planned delivery of some sort is the way to go. Um, and, and the other reason to plan it, I, I, I would argue, is um, because you've got all the senior staff around, people who know them. What you don't want is um, them delivering on a public holiday at 2am 
when uh, all the people who understand this condition and have sort of been involved in the antenatal planning aren't around. Although it's always going to happen, isn't it? So it's, it's good to, if you do have a really a comprehensive plan, to make sure it's written down and it's in the notes so that you can at least, um, the after hour staff can at least have a read through and figure out what what, what the plan is. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, um, yeah, I was going to go through um, the physiological things that we want to avoid. Uh, and then we were going to go through, um, because of the, let's face it, we are anaesthetists, we were going to talk about the anaesthetic uh, plan for three different scenarios. So a planned elective seizure, a general anaesthetic, um, if required for a caesarean, and a vaginal delivery of some sort, you know, whether that be instrumental or otherwise. Um, so let's just go through the um, the, the management of the hemodynamics. So basically, the, obviously, the key thing we want to do is not um, do do anything catastrophic to their circulation. And I guess the one thing that we have to really keep in the back of our minds is that these patients are absolutely reliant on there being a pressure gradient from the system, you know, having a quite a high systemic venous pressure, and then having a pressure gradient that. Um, allows blood to flow from the veins through the lungs and to get into the um, the actual heart that pumps blood around their body. So anything that we do that can upset that, you know, so um, could have catastrophic effects on their circulation and cause, um, you know, cardiovascular collapse. So Chong, I'm gonna, we've written down a few things. We had a bit of a, a um, tallied up all the things that we could think of that in a um, obstetric scenario that could interfere with these things so one is uh the things that can interfere with venous return do you want to kick off chong and go through the things that could decrease the venous pressure or decrease the venous um return to the to the to the lungs yeah well so uh the first thing that we might do as an is um drop their uh the vascular resistance um by um uh, inducing a spinal anesthetic or a, a general anesthetic uh, so um, taking so, care of uh, induction would be would be prudent. Yep. So all of our drugs cause um, dilation of the venous um, vessels. Yep. Yep. And then uh, after we've gotten our spinal in, or uh, when we bring them to the theatre, they might be lying uh, on their back, and uh, so aortic cable compression uh, is a concern. So um, we were talking about the value of the lateral tilt, and in practice, really thirty degrees is. Um, never really done so the ideal method would be uh, left uterine displacement yep so um well, this is probably a separate podcast but someone presented recently at sydney saying that they did some imaging and they showed that basically um tilting the table doesn't um open up the vena cava yeah uh you basically have to manually displace the uterus so it might be i, re I recommend um, that you actually have someone standing there pulling the uterus off to the side to, to try and open up the vena cava what else should we be avoiding? So unfortunately, if they come into theatre, they probably can't be operating with a uh, <laughs> manual displacement. But you but could do it uh, at the start. You could do it for the, the initial sort of 15 minutes or so when everyone's getting everything ready. Yeah, that's true. And then yep. Until you stabilise. Uh, so if they're under a GA, I don't know how practical it is to try and maintain spontaneous ventilation. Um, but uh, yep. there it is. Yep. So when you breathe spontaneously, the negative pressure in your chest sucks blood into your chest and so that helps deliver blood through the lungs so I guess that's just basically we're just saying that that is one of the um, mechanisms to sort of um, help the passive flow of blood into the in, through the lungs yeah. 
Yep. Uh, and then we can talk about um, the ventilation side of things uh, as well. So uh, to avoid high airway pressures or avoid excessive PEEP. Um, and then to keep an eye on the uh, avoiding hypoxia and hypercarbia. Uh, yep, so I'm just going to stop there and just um, explain to the, some of the listeners. So what, so what we do, we've talked about the things that can affect the return of blood through the venous system. So the other thing that we've got to avoid is um, anything that increases uh, resistance or um, sort of makes it harder for the blood to flow through the lungs is going to make the... Um, Circulation, you're going to impair the circulation because there's no right heart pumping the blood through the lungs. It's got to flow passively through through the lungs. So some of the things that uh, Chong's just mentioned, um, like um, putting someone on a ventilator and, and positive pressure. So positive pressure in the chest, that tends to uh, and PEEP, which is um, end expiratory pressure, that tends to um, make it harder for blood to passively throw, flow through the lungs. Um, and then there was a couple of other things you mentioned, Chong. What was that? Hypoxia and hypercarbia. So yep. they they cause vasoconstriction in the blood vessels of the lungs. So that's also going to make things worse, make it harder for the blood to get through. Um, keep yeah. going. Yeah, then we, um, in <coughs> following on from ventilation, uh, not that we generally do valve salver maneuvers under anaesthesia, but avoiding valve salver is also uh, something to uh, avoid any... Uh, rapid increases in the pulmonary vascular resistance uh, and then we come to problems with the uh, during the actual delivery itself so um, GTN boluses are sometimes used either sublingually or intravenously and uh, that would be obviously a, a, a quite a hazardous thing to uh, utilize um, and then after delivery as well, we would probably avoid uh, large boluses of oxytocin or any bolus of oxytocin altogether. But uh, then the other uterotonics can be hazardous in, the, in themselves too. So um, ergometrine and uh, carboprost might induce uh, some vascular resistance, pulmonary yeah. vascular resistance. So I guess in practice, um, we've just got to be aware that some of these things, some of these drugs that we have to give... Um, can cause these things but in real life we don't want them to bleed either do we Chong so we're sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place can you remember you, I'm sure you must have given some of these drugs in your patient because she was bleeding wasn't she uh, so I think in that case what I remember doing is that we just ran an infusion uh, without any boluses and I think we avoided any further uterotonics and uh, she actually went for an, um, other non-pharmacological uh, methods yep so that would include interventional uh, radiology or uh, a battery or perhaps even a, uh, a B-link suture, whichever one uh, is practical at the time. Um, our job at the time is just to correct or uh, avoid uh, major hypovolemia, which the patient wouldn't tolerate either. That's right, yeah. So um, make, m- making sure we aggressively resuscitate them to keep their venous pressure up. So I, I would also... In the back of my mind, when I'm reading, uh, when I'm thinking that all, all these um, oxytocic drugs could cause a lot of problems, that um, prevention, like all, um, like the Boy Scouts, prevention's, um, is it the Boy Scouts? No, the Boy Scouts could pre- be prepared, be aren't prepared, they? So, the, not that, I, I actually think, yeah, there's nothing to do with the Boy Scouts. Prevention's better than cure. So, there's actually sometimes, you know, um, we can, we do, what we don't want is uterine atony that's going to need all these drugs. So maybe uh, flogging someone for a whole day with an oxytocin infusion to try and get them into labour is not a sensible thing to do if they've got a Fontan circulation. 
and then discovering they have a, a you know, uterine atony and a big bleed because um, the bleeding will make them hypovolemic and, uh, and then f- trying to give them all these drugs which can affect the pulmonary circulation might also cause cardiovascular compromise. So maybe just avoiding that in the first place um, is, yes. a sen- is a sensible thing. This could be another opportunity for the uh, uh, aortic manual occlusion that you've uh, mentioned previously. That's right, yeah. So so that probably wouldn't cause a problem. Well, I don't know, but then, but then um, it's... You know, if there's no blood leaving the heart, um, there's not much getting back to the heart, so I don't know. Um, yeah, I just think having a planned uh, caesarean might be better than trying trying really hard to flog someone for a whole day on oxytocin. But anyway, that is um, probably a sort of an obstetric decision, but it's useful for them to under- for, for all of us to understand the, the implications of some of the things we do. Um, so what else? So let's talk a little bit about the uh, how we could safely give uh, anaesthesia and analgesia for these deliveries. Um, and the other complicating factor often is uh, some some of these patients who have congenital heart disease have have um, coexisting congenital conditions in other parts of their body as well, don't they? Yeah, the uh, case that I had had a, a number of other uh, not necessarily congenital but some um, other unusual conditions, and, uh, she, uh, and the the bleeding might even start. Uh, pre-delivery as well, which is another concern uh, for us. All right, so <clears throat> let's say that this woman has a planned elective caesarean. She stops her um, her um, therapeutic lexane tw- 24 hours beforehand then comes in for a planned elective caesarean. How would you go about it, John? Uh, so you'd want to make sure that you're at the right hospital, which we, I guess we don't have uh, much of a choice, but uh, to get the best staff in that you can at the time. Yep. So to book it when you can get the right stuff in. Um, and, you know, really doing an anaesthetic for these cases, it's just that there isn't anything wildly unusual about what to do. It's just that everything has to be pretty well thought out, well planned and executed well too. Um, because all of these things that we're about to mention are generally fairly familiar uh, to us. Uh, so that includes inserting large uh, bore IV cannulas and an arterial line uh, and ensuring a very smooth, slow-onset um, neuraxial uh, technique. Yep, that's right. So, so you're not going to bang in a single-shot spinal with a with a just with a, a drip, because um, as we all know, you can get profound sort of hypotension, and um, that includes venous um, venodilation, which uh, you know. Uh, most of the time we think of the neuroaxial block causes um, arteriolar vasodilation, which it does, obviously. But uh, equally, you also get a lot of um, venous uh, capacitance vessels get dilated or uh, lose their um, tone, and that um, that's a catastrophic thing you want to avoid in someone with this sort of circulation, isn't it? So how can we numb someone's abdomen with a regional block slowly and in a controlled manner? So we talk about the low-dose spinal and an epidural top-up or maybe even a pure epidural top-up yep um <coughs> so when you say low dose csc what would you do put in the spinal component i'm putting it on the spot now yeah, it's hard to say. <laughs> um well i guess that would depend on the size of the patient but um you would probably start with something like 1.5 or 1.8 mils um, oh, I reckon I'd go a little bit lower than that, even. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, uh, the other thing. <laughs> but I you could. You, you're a brave man. <laughs> yeah. Because if you've got an arterial line and a big can, cannula, you, know, you can keep 
and keep them topped up volume wise with lots of fluid and um, you can constrict them with some with some elf aragonist so you probably I don't think there's a right or wrong answer there as oh, long as you do yeah. it really carefully and um, it's almost it's almost mandatory you've got an arterial line isn't it because um, you want to know what's happening really really quickly so you, you, you've got to have really close monitoring of their blood pressure yeah, in a, in a in a good um, scenario, I suppose sometimes uh, it might be impractical to have the arterial line placed, uh, and it may be difficult in these patients too. Yep. Um, what about uh, a central line? So we'll, we'll let's assume this is a planned lick of Caesar, though. So we're going to spend a time to carefully put all the lines in that we need. <clears throat> um, so, I mean, measuring the central venous pressure has gone out of fashion for uh, most most patients in um, theatre or ICU nowadays, but um, what about someone like this with a Fontan circulation? I've actually, you know, reading through some of the literature pre- preparing for this talk, we, um, you know, they rely on having a really high venous pressure. So I think there are, you know, some people advocate that you should consider putting in a central line and monitoring the central venous pressure because a low central venous pressure is a bad thing. So that's probably more, more useful in these patients than uh, it would be in, say, the average sort of patient. Uh, so I just throw that out there. I don't think we've done that in any of the patients that we've had, but that doesn't necessarily mean we did the right thing. No, and, and uh, I'd, have, I'd have concerns about inserting a central line in terms of the anatomy, and uh, if possible, it'd be good to have a discussion with their specialists uh, to determine um, how far, uh, for example, the central line should be inserted. But um, Yeah, that's right. I think you're right. I, I agree, John. I'd be very... A careful and probably put it in not um you know i don't know about you maybe 11 centimeters or something like that so maybe just above the um carina on a chest x-ray but but um i was trying to think you're right so the vena cava has been plumbed into the uh pulmonary artery so so you got, i guess there has been some surgery occurring um okay all right so the other thing i was going to say about the uh <laughs> Sorry, I keep the, butting in. Oh, no, the spinal, the spinal dose. So um, I think regardless of what spinal dose you choose, you're obviously going to be using a vasopressor. And uh, more recently, I've gotten into the practice of actually starting a vasopressor uh, before the spinal actually uh, is injected. Uh, two things why I think that that's a good idea. The first is uh, that you're not going to then inject the spinal without having checked that your vasopressor is already connected and ready to go. Uh, And the second reason would be that I think it's generally easier to keep a blood pressure maintained than it is to scoop it back up after it has fallen down to the 60s. Yep. Yep, so that's definitely a good thing to do. And um, you probably want to have two IVs because if one of your IVs accidentally tissued at any stage, that would be a catastrophic um, scenario. That's happened to me a few times during my life. Not with anyone with a Fontan circulation, thank God, but I have um, had someone pull out the uh, IV cannula as they were taking the drape off just after putting the spinal in, and uh, that was not interesting. That was a, not a very um, nice experience. So, well, yeah, I think we've done that to death. Uh, oh, we didn't mention intrathecal catheters, so people have actually talked about... Um, that's the other way to, to bring on a slow block, is actually sticking a neuroaxial catheter into this uh, CSF and topping that up really slowly as well. So, yeah, because in fact, I guess uh, if you're having trouble with the block and you really wanted to do it, um, uh, that is, you know, and uh, the the the, un, the main downside to that is a bad headache afterwards, obviously, and or um, you got to be careful when you top up intrathecal catheters, in my opinion, because you can't overdo it. 
Yeah, uh, and what I was also going to mention about the uh, low-dose spinal or the pure epidural top-up is that uh, we often don't wait long enough uh, between epidural doses and um, we are very capable of overshooting um, due yep. to our impatience, really. Yep. <clears throat> um, okay, so let's talk about how to do a GA. So basically, we're just following the same principles of uh, what we talked about before, you know, trying to avoid dilation of the venous bed and uh, trying to avoid excessive pressure in their chest when we ventilate them. So the, the truth is that most of them, I think, if we're careful uh, and not, and uh, and they're, they're not hypovolemic, tolerate a general anaesthetic and, and a bit of positive pressure ventilation pretty well in my, uh, from what I've seen in the few patients we've had and from uh, the reading of the literature. Yep. yep uh, so but, but we should be a little bit more careful than usual, I suppose. So what, how would you induce someone and uh, what sort of... Um, precautions would you take? Uh, so avoiding excessive doses of anything is obviously the, um, the goal. Uh, yep. Avoiding thiopentone is what we've also come across. Uh, uh, presumably that has more of a myocardial depressant effect compared to propofol. Uh, yep. And ketamine. Probably if you just use a judicious dose, it probably doesn't matter which induction agent you use, I guess, as long as you're monitoring things carefully. Yeah, that's right. Um, and then having your vasopressors ready. Now, there's also some uh, concern about using alpha agonism and uh, the effects on the pulmonary circulation, but uh, in my opinion, if you've used something that you know has caused some um, vasodilation, it's not a bad idea to reverse that with judicious doses of an alpha agonist as well. Yep. So, I mean, uh, I have heard a lot of people talking about... Um you know, using things like vasopressin because they cause systemic uh, vasoconstriction but not pulmonary vasoconstriction. I think you just ask, I don't know about you, what do you think, John? I think you're asking for trouble if you're going to try and use dilute vasopressin as your vasopressor of choice because, uh, you know, we never use it usually. We have no idea of dosing or um, don't have a very good feel for how, how to use it. So you're, uh, you're asking for trouble to try and use a drug you're not familiar with. Um, no, and I think, um, I think... The, the the effects of um, you know phenylephrine or metaraminol on the pulmonary vasoconstriction uh, are probably real, but they're but they're probably not enough that they're actually going to cause a problem. Yeah, uh, especially the, in the doses we use. Yeah, that's right. And so the uh, other alternative would be to use something like epidrine that's got a little bit of uh, a beta action as well. Yeah. Uh, uh, presumably because that's what's really going to help uh, drive the cardiac output in that in that situation. Okay. So we've done that one to death. Let's move on to the vaginal delivery. So let's assume they've decided that they want to deliver the patient um, vaginally. Same principles are again, really, aren't they? So just really um, avoiding anything that's going to cause hypovolemia, such as bleeding or um, you know vas severe venous vasodilation or via you know our epidural. Uh, so pretty much you want to sort of I reckon line them up just like you would. Um, in theatre, when if you're going to use a neuroxial block in theatre, so you want to have um, good venous access, probably a couple of cannulas, an arterial line to keep a really close eye on their blood pressure. Uh, epidural analgesia is the way to go because they're going to try and um, minimise things like valsalvering and and pushing and uh, and all that sort of stuff, which um, uh, is bad for uh, venous return at the time of delivery. So they're going to need some good analgesia for for an assisted delivery. Uh, with uh, usually like a lift out with forceps or something like that um, and of course if we're going to use epidural analgesia we're going to have to keep a close eye on their hemodynamics 
Yeah, it might be a good idea to uh, have your vasopressors ready in that setting as well. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So, yeah. yep. so it's going to be a long day for the anaesthetist who's looking after this patient because uh, if they're in labour down in labour, you're pretty much going to have to be lurking around outside the door most of the day. Um, <clears throat> or if you're lucky enough, they might, you might be able to put them in um, your high dependency area, but uh, we don't have an ICU, so I don't know. Yeah, I think pretty much you're just going to have to sort of have someone allocated to keeping a close eye on them the whole time. Um, we've already mentioned uh, PGF2, carboprost, and uh, we're talking about too much oxytocin in labour. You're trying to avoid uterine agony because of the, all the bad, bad things that could happen with the drugs that we usually use to treat it. Um, not saying you wouldn't use those drugs, but I guess you're just going to be aware that if you did, you, sometimes things like those drugs can cause pretty uh, serious effects on the pulmonary um, vasculature. And that might not be a good thing. So if you can, maybe if you can avoid it or or treat the, the uterine agony with some an alternative method, that would be better. Yeah, okay, yeah. I reckon we've just about talked long enough. So let's presume that they have delivered, and uh, we've managed to get them through alive without killing them by the by um, some sort of anaesthetic mishap or uh, some sort of um, obstetric mishap. Where what are you going to do with it afterwards? So these patients will need careful monitoring, obviously, uh, in the postpartum, post-operative period. Yep. Um, ideally, in a high dependency unit or uh, intensive care unit, uh, and the same principles apply to uh, careful hemodynamic monitoring, um, and the, the fluid status as well. Yeah, that's right. So um, that, that's good, and I think. Um so hypoxia and hypercarbia are bad, so you know, bombing them out with lots of opioids as their post-operative pain relief is probably not a good thing. Uh, try to minimise how much opioids they need, which is probably good for everyone, isn't it? Um, and certainly keep a close eye on them in those first couple of days um, because uh, noticing if they're having um, being excessively um, sedated and getting a bit of hypoxia or hypercarbia is a good thing. You know, to, just try and avoid that. And finally, I just had a few thoughts. What happens if something bad does happen and they go... You know, things go really pear-shaped. You know, um, I tried to Google this. You know, what 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 would um, if they did have, say, cardiac arrest or complete cardiovascular collapse? You know, what what are sort of options are available? I guess it'd be really nice to be in a hospital that has um, advanced cardiology and cardiothoracic surgeons to come and help you. I know they talk about using ECMO and um, other sort of um, cardiovascular support technologies in. Um, Lots of conditions now, and uh, and also I know they have and have used them as uh, bridges and fa failing fontan circulations in the past. So, you know, being in a hospital that has all, all those clever people around to to help you out is probably a good thing. Um, and I don't think I don't feel that I have enough uh, knowledge in that area to you know make any more anything more say anything more definitive than that. Any closing comments, John? Uh, no, no, I think uh, you've covered it pretty well. All right, what's your prediction for the World Cup? Actually, I actually don't know who's in it. Uh, <laughs> okay. I, I do, do know it. that Russia, so you, so Russia might can... have just, um, just beaten Spain. Um, so so yeah. were you, you going to go for Russia, are you? I wouldn't say I'll go for them, but uh, they may well win. I'm going to predict Belgium. I'm sticking with my first pick. Okay, thanks Thanks for coming along, Chong, and uh, uh, I'll have to call you for another topic sometime in the future. Yeah, all right. I'll uh, see you again. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please go to the iTunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it. Write a review. This will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the iTunes menu. 
If you're also interested, please go to our website at www.opsandgarnycritcare.org where there'll be lots of show notes and links to interesting videos related to the topic that you just listened to. See you again next time.